This podcast is brought to you on Roku and Fire TV by Pod Nation Podcast TV. Find us on X, Facebook, Instagram, or wherever podcasts are broadcast. Download our app and never miss a show with video on demand as well as exclusive content found only on Pod Nation TV. Live from Hong Kong, it's... The Monster Island Film Vault, episode 83, Son of Godzilla, featuring Neil Reby. Hello, kaiju lovers, and welcome to the Monster Island Film Vault, a podcast seeking entertainment and enlightenment through tokusatsu. I am your host, the film curator on Monster Island, or, you know, this at this point in Hong Kong, because this is live from the mobile studio, Nate Marchand. Yeah, Jimmy, you still might want to keep working on that microphone because it still sounds a little strange to me. At least I can still understand what you're saying. But anyway, we're continuing our sub-series Godzilla Redux with a returning guest. It's a little bit different than what I had originally planned, but unfortunately, Chris Cook was unable to make it. He's got a lot of stuff going on right now. He had to go manage it, but I have my... <laughs> he volunteered to be the sub for any Godzilla movie that I cover. I'm not kidding you, but we have with us today author and self-identified Kaiju Codger, Neil Reby. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thanks for having me back on the show. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to have you on here, but it, it's so funny. I was talking to, with you, I don't know, about a year or so ago, and I said, hey, what, what kind of movies would you like to come on for? And he's like, oh, put me down for any Godzilla movie. I don't care. I'm like, okay. <laughs> so yeah, guess, who's, guess who's going to be the, you know, the backup in case somebody can't show for a Godzilla movie? <laughs> Yeah, no, I don't mind being a bench warmer. That's not quite all right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's kind of appropriate because you know, we're talking about Son of Godzilla today. And th this came out in the year of the kaiju, 1967. And, you know, you've got a particular interest in some other things that came out in 1967 <laughs> in the year well, of the okay, kaiju. Monster from the Deep. Yep, which is scheduled to be on the show this season. <laughs> Oh, but yeah. So we got we've got a lot to cover today with all of this. Well, before we get into that, you know, since we're in Hong Kong now in the mobile studio here in Uber Mogura, this is your first time actually in Uber Mogura, is it not? Yes, it is. First time. Yeah, it's my first time in the Mecca. Oh, there you go. You know, I've gotten a little used to it myself after a while. So you yeah. know. It's, I haven't seen some display pretty light since I had my colonoscopy. So, you know. uh, oh, well. <laughs> <laughs> but wait till, you have, wait till you have your turn. I was, like I said, it's, it's just like being in a set for a science fiction film. So it's Oh, it's, yeah? Like, <laughs> Jimmy thinks that's a little TMI there, colonoscopy. <laughs> well, you remember, I'm the codger. I've reached that age. <laughs> I'm thinking, oh, I have to have these things. Yeah, Dr. Al. So. Yeah, well, that, that, is, uh, that is true. <laughs> but how'd you, what brought you to Hong Kong today? <laughs> you know, I heard you had this expedition going, you know, and I, as I told you before, off camera, or, you know, that I had this um, connection with BS Digital, you know, all I do is oh, get my yeah. You'll tell anything you want to know. 
And so I know Hong Kong's a bit of a treacherous area, so I might have a few tips we can get around because, you know, Hannibal Chow is out there. He's got his operatives. and now Over in the bone slums, yeah. Yeah, and as I kind of warn you, you know, that's something I was really concerned. I'm glad you brought me along because, you know, the monsters we're looking for, they may already be chopped up a little bit, you know, so. <laughs> yeah, we've already had to wrangle one because that's our whole deal right now is we have we have been commissioned to go wrangle some escaped kaiju went back to their home countries and we caught Jiju Guai, I hope I said that right, the big spider who famously fought Inframan and mm. we sent him back to the island. That was interesting. Yeah, I didn't realize that my friend Danny Demana could henshin. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, also, don't, don't forget the Apex. I mean, you know, it has one of their facilities out here, and I think that's pretty much all, all under repair. Uh, uh, yeah. Well, it got trashed pretty hard by a Mecha Godzilla. <laughs> well, they got deep pockets. They can get them in the, They also have a good insurance policy, so I'm sure they got that all back up. Oh, so, yeah, I'm, I'm sure they do. I'm sure they do. And. Although they do have the world's largest pothole to fill up. Yes. Yeah, Although I don't yeah. think you can fill that one up. <laughs> no. So you got that access now. Now, Yeah, that's that thing, too. That pothole was right down the center of the earth. You know it's down there. Oh, yeah. How the earth theory is not a theory. Nope, a not fact. anymore. And we do, have, we do have one of those passages to the hollow earth on Monster Island. There have been some shenanigans that it have happened due to those. Okay, well, that's good to know, because if we have to get out of here fast, that's our escape route. There, there you go. That's our escape <laughs> route. <laughs> well, anyway, we're, no, we're not here to talk about all the goings-on, all the kaiju goings-on here in Hong Kong. We're here to talk about a Godzilla movie, namely, like I said, Son of Godzilla. So before we dive headlong into that, Neil, would you like to let the kaiju lovers know, for if for whatever reason they haven't seen this, what happens in this movie? Oh, what happens in this movie? Well, this will get a chance to meet Godzilla's son. So this movie is like, you know, <laughs> it's right in the title. <laughs> yeah. It only took him 13 years. I mean, you know, like, you know, Kong got one in six months and then Dracula had a daughter and Frankenstein had a son. You know, it happened pretty fast, but, you know, finally got around to it. Yeah, well, you know, well, Chris, this, this situation, you know, Tanaka was, you know, kind of like pulling his hair off for ideas, you know, because he was getting concerned with the audience, you know, attendance going down, but only the well, I had to go with a new direction. And so he thought to give it a son, give Godzilla a son, and that way he can bring in the date crowd, you know, and the, also the appeal. Yes, to people, this is a date movie. <laughs> yes. And there's some yeah. very interesting reasons why. <laughs> Well, it was also a double feature with one of the Young Guy films, which were mm -hmm. date movies back then. Mm -hmm. You know, and then, of course, you had the young Akira uh, Kubo and Beverly Maeda, who were both, you know, young stars. They meet on the island, you know, and, of course, Maeda plays an exotic girl. And mm -hmm. yeah, and Akira Kubo plays, you know, uh, your, your average city boy. And he meets a pretty girl in the jungle <laughs> and they get to like each other. And they go to the uh, Goro Maki, which is a name that pops up a lot in Godzilla movies. It's like Paul in the Hammer Horror films. You know? Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah, we had a Goromaki and Return of Godzilla slash Godzilla 85 and Shin Godzilla. But anyway. But you know what's funny? Because Toho and Hammer tried to do a collaboration once. If they did succeed, they should call their characters Goro and Paul, you know, just to keep their characters <laughs> Yeah, Nessie. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, I remember that. But so, okay, so we got the two young people meeting on the island, but why is Mr. Maki on the island? 
Okay, well, the United Nations has set up a, a, a installation down there. The island's called Sogel Island. Mm-hmm. And so they are, are trying to come up with a weather control device because they have the issues of uh, world hunger because the population is ever expanding. And so we need to get some of those areas like the deserts and these areas where you can't turn into farmland and make them farmland. It's almost like a theme that they sort of revisited in Godzilla versus Biollante, you know, where they had heat resistant to wheat, you know, that can grow out in the desert. But here in this case, they're going to have this more of a science fiction angle where they got this big fancy full thing. It looks like a little thing like Sputnik. You remember what Sputnik that ball oh, yeah. the antennas? You know, not to be confused that. with Rushbot's little sidekick. But. <laughs> yeah, you know. So they got that you know, experimentation going on, and that's what draws Goro there because he's a reporter. He has, he has his gut instinct says there's a great story here, and so and then he, he drops off on the airplane and. And just, you know, with his stubbornness convinced, this is Dr. Kasumi, the head of the project, to, yeah, you know, uh, the, yes. have him stay. But, the, of course, he had to do basically KP duty as part of the agreement. <laughs> so, of course, that leads to some hijinks later on in the film where he uh, he soaks the, the vegetables in the, uh, in the, the bath water. Uh, well, actually, it was for laundry for, for yep. um, Angie Sahara's boxers, you know. <laughs> So then Sogel, you know, of course, like all, you know, islands in Japanese monster movies has, you know, giant animals, indigenous of the island in the form of giant insects like Kamakuris, the giant mantis. Mm-hmm. Or Jamantis in the dub. Yeah, Jamantis. So anyways, please sum up. So, okay, you got the, you know, you got the, the giant bugs. Guzzle's son, the egg is there. You know, his egg is buried in there and... Godzilla gets in there, and then Godzilla and Son of Godzilla, this is kind of the core of the movie then as far as on the monster side, is where you got uh, Godzilla being a father figure to Minya, as I like to call him. I prefer that over Minila. <laughs> and I uh, teach him how to roar, teach him how to shoot his flame, and teach him how to fight, you know. Themes that kind of get picked up later on again, a second time in Godzilla's Revenge. And so eventually, you know, they get into a struggle with the with the main monster, which is this giant spider called Kumonga. Mm-hmm. Or, or Spiga. Or Spiga. Yeah. You know, and, and some of the older translations, like the oh, the older international dubs use Spiga. Mm-hmm. And famous monsters you magazine use Spiga. But that, that's getting off the sidetrack here. So in the end, they had the big struggle with the spider, and Minila, or Minya, had a chance to kind of help out his dad in, in the battle, you know, because he got a chance to perfect his, his, you know, fire breath and wasn't just doing smoke rings. And of course, the human characters. Now, of course, this was causing trouble for the human characters. At this point, they were hiding inside Saeko's cave. Mm-hmm. And of course, the battle's happening above the cave, and they were at risk of having the cave in. So they figured the only way they can, you know, escape the island is to revive their weather control experiment for one last test and see if they can freeze the island so that way the, the monsters that are put in hibernation. Mm-hmm. I can't imagine what it does to this environment because before they superheated it, and now they're freezing it. <laughs> It's oh, like yeah. it's like Indiana, the island. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> One day it's a hundred degrees, uh, the next day it's uh, ten. So, <laughs> well, you know, part of my my contact to BS Digital, you know, there have been weather control experiments going on in your state for some time, so I may explain some. <laughs> I can neither confirm nor deny. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I'll have another bottle of scotch to confirm that there for you. But anyway. <laughs> Uh, but anyway, so they so they start the weather experiment again. Yes, and so that that, that wraps up the movie. You know, unfortunately, I'm not very good at summarizing things. So I'm trying to. You know, nah, it's all right. Things. You did you did well enough. 
just to let everybody know really quick, this ha actually has a lot of the same creative team who worked on Ebro Horror of the Deep. We got June Fukuda returning to the director's chair. Uh, so it's basically like the B team, the A team. No, not that A team. I see you trying to interrupt me about that, Jimmy. <laughs> I pity the fool who watched Godzilla. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> or maybe, or a better one might be like, I pity the fool. And his name is Minya. I mean, <laughs> not that one but they they were all making the other because toho was so nuts like everybody like everybody else putting out a kaiju movie in japan because you know gear the kaiju toho's like we're so cool we'll put out two this was one of the two the other one was king kong escapes and the a team was working on that and i've already covered that go back and listen to the episode on that one i think it's like episode i think it's six or seven you'll have to confirm that in your blog jimmy but you know, so they're working on king kong escapes but we still have sekizawa which is interesting but we don't technically have ag subaraya he was busy working on tv making ultra seven at this point so we had his apprentice basically uh, saramasa arakawa who was working on it and i believe Teriyoshi Nakano was also working on this, but he wasn't the main supervisor. Yeah, well, I, I don't know if you got a second, I can verify that, but maybe what might be more interesting is go back to the points you made about A-Team, B-Team, because it was like that same thing with Godzilla versus Sea Monster where the A-Team was making War of the Gargantuas. Yes. Yes. You know? Now, we do have some pretty significant actors in this compared to the other one, uh, compared to Ebro Horror of the Deep, although Ebro Horror of the Deep did have Takarada in it, but everybody else was these young, uh, you know, these young new actors, which was Fukuda's specialty. He loved working with young actors because he made the, the young guy movies, which are basically college comedies or action films or something like that. So he's good with young actors. We only have two here. We have Beverly Maeda and Akira Kubo who are in this. Everybody else is more seasoned actors in this, most notably Akihiko Harada is in this, thankfully not wearing an eye patch. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, no more eye patches. <laughs> yep. And Kenji Sahara is in it as yeah. well. So th those are the names that people will be most likely to recognize. We also had Tadao Takashima, who yeah. you would recognize. He's not as, the name isn't as well known, but you would recognize him if you saw him in this movie he's professor kasumi funny story apparently because they filmed this movie largely uh, in guam and then i'm trying to let me look up the other location they did film it a few play other places as well but you know but sao did not like going on an airplane so they nope. couldn't get him out there. they couldn't get him to go <laughs> supposedly because he was afraid of flying so they needed a double on location and then he filmed a lot of his stuff on set yeah the gotenba lake yamana and the Fuji Five Lakes region and Oshima. That's where they, uh, also where they filmed this movie. And you could tell, my gosh, this this movie is positively indulgent compared to the first one. It seems like they either threw a bit more money at this, even though this was part of the Island series, so they're trying to save money by not doing big cityscapes. But, my gosh, <laughs> some of the other effects that they did in this are crazy. Yeah, you know, you kind of you, you kind of pay attention. This is like the one movie where you've probably seen the most, where you have the actual human actors and the monsters superimposed in the same shot. Mm -hmm. 
you know, this was like the most frequently you would see this. I mean, they've done it before, but like I said, and sometimes they have the humans on the actual monster set somehow, whatever, you know, composited in there or vice versa, the monsters into the live action set. You know, like one mm-hmm. of my favorite moments is when Kamakuris, when the first Kamakuris got set aflame. And so you had, you know, Goromaki and the Kenshi Sahara character running away from the battle. And you had that spinning leg above them. You know, and it lands right on the ground near them. And of course, that was, you know, the studio prop of the leg, you know, superimposed and it looked large right on the same shot with them. Mm-hmm. And now the first time I seen that that scene, well, it was years ago on TV, the video for it was very sharp and crisp. So, so it almost looked like it was all one done live in front of the camera and not composited later. But mm-hmm. since then, on video releases, for some reason, that shot looks rather blurry so it doesn't look quite as good as it used to but anyway but there's a lot of other really good examples you know where they like when the psycho character and she's you know got spotted by the kamakuras and she's trying to escape him and then uh, minya shows up and of course they show her running around in between them and again that's a very nicely composite it is but i honestly i mean the, the composite shots are one thing but what really got to me was the life-size props that they made for the monster appendages in this. Like there are, there are, there are shots where they have a life-size mantis claw that comes down, tries to get the characters, but the, like the special effects centerpiece, the piece de resistance, I would say is the Kumonga stinger that they use in a couple of cave sequences. And I'm just like, my word. (laughs) they put work into this (laughs) does that couldn't have been cheap i mean that's the sort of stuff i expect to see in a hollywood movie right there (laughs) well now when i was reading in one of john's books that i guess guam cut them a deal for filming out there so that might would help save money then for the special effects i guess most of the shooting they did out there they were given a hotel and transportation which cut down on costs Mm mm-hmm yeah, so maybe that's where they got the extra money from is that they didn't, their location shooting was kind of on a discount. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I, the, I know some people might kind of frown upon these insect monsters, or if, in the case of Kamonga, you know, arachnid monster. I, yes, Jimmy, I know you were heading for that button. I caught it. <laughs> I get it. Spiders are not insects. But, but the, the, these things are incredible special effects. Mm-hmm. in this movie it, it is nuts how effective they are especially kumanga like it, it took 20 people to run yeah. kumanga 20 puppeteers sometimes they had as many as two or three puppeteers just on one leg on yeah, that spider and, and yeah i don't know if it, one thing you'll find for the viewers and then when the show's over is go and try to see if you can find some behind the scenes photos because they're way up in the rafters with this next to the studio lights within a couple of feet of them. And they're hanging over the edge, you know, working the wires. And can you imagine if you, you know, say if you got vertical, I don't know how you can handle that job. Cause if you've seen the, you know, Toho studios, you know, it's got a pretty high ceiling. You're way up there. And then if you fell, you know, <laughs> I, I trust me, I've watched enough old school Tokusatsu where I'm just like, how did you do that and not get killed? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was like, did you have a safety net while that was going on? <laughs> yeah, you know, just you know, kind of this wooden scaffolding they build up there. So I don't know, you know, I, I guess you have to be really feel really confident when you're up there when you hear the nails creaking in the wood under your weight. And you're way right. up there, right? And actually, to go along with it, not only are the are these puppets because these are puppets 
they're not men in suits this time around, which is an interesting change. But it's not just the puppetry that's fantastic in this. It, it, I have to give credit to the sound design for these monsters, too, because they make some... And I'm, I'm not just talking about the roars or whatever, the cries that they make. Just the noise they make when they move is kind of unnerving, to be honest. Oh, noises yeah, yeah it, it almost it's almost sounds like i don't know how to describe it other than it sounds almost like taking two pieces of leather and kind of rubbing it together mm-hmm. <laughs> well it makes sense because you know, they got an exoskeleton i suppose you magnified an insect that large it, it says it got a solid exterior probably would have kind of a creaky noise to it yeah which like i said just makes it really unnerving especially when they are menacing our human characters you don't hear it well you hear it more you do hear it when the com- the Kamakurai, I don't know if that's an official plural or not. <laughs> don't lecture me on that, okay? Put it in your blog. <laughs> but when they're menacing Godzilla and Manila, Minya, whichever name you prefer, you hear it then. But I think with the spider, you mostly hear it when it's the stinger scenes. Those fantastic, just fantastic stinger scenes. Good grief. I can't say that enough. Those are some of the that's some of the best effect scenes in the entire Godzilla franchise as far as like especially in the show era because my word <laughs> amazingly nobody dies in this movie I want to point out <laughs> if this was an American yeah. movie you would have had three people get out alive <laughs> yes yeah, so remarkably yeah. nobody dies <laughs> yeah I'd be like John Carpenter's the thing you know it'd be two people and uh, yeah I mean, it would be like it would be, like, it, it would be like actually what it would most likely it would have probably just been the two young characters they get a, they get out and all the and all the boomers die you know <laughs> yeah yeah they'd be floating on a raft you know and all sun scorched and uh, and traumatized and then, yeah <laughs> but anyway absolutely fantastic sound design in this and the, the noises they make are pretty unnerving to uh, pretty unnerving too i think stuart galbraith actually tried to get wrote the onomatopoeia for the kamakuruses which was i think he said it was like sherp <laughs> sherp <laughs> like okay that's actually pretty close <laughs> yeah, kind of hissing noise a little bit and the other thing that's interesting about them is there have been plenty of giant insects in movies okay you know toho had already had done it some there's a lot in american movies it's one of those things insects and i would say the reason you see a lot of giant insects and a lot of giant reptiles is because for we humans we're mammals they're so completely other and different there's that aspect and then when you're a little kid well those are your favorite animals yeah go figure right but (laughs) the reptiles you know are associated with dinosaurs right there you go but the the thing that's interesting about the about the kamakras is is that they already start off by our standards as large they're six feet tall normally yeah you know and they're just indigenous animals on solgul which no no people I don't care if they reference it in this, okay? Solgo Island is not Monster Island, okay? It's a different island. <laughs> I, I concur with that. Yeah, it is a it is a different island, all right? It, it, some parts of it are still thawing out, just so you know. <laughs> the actual Monster Island occasionally sends a team over there to continue investigating, and uh, they just keep uh, they keep sending back reports that says, "Yep, it's still being Indiana." Oh yeah, okay, I get it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But anyway, 
we have wacky weather in Indiana. Trust me, <laughs> I live there most of my life. But so anyway, uh, what was I talking about? <laughs> I'm going all over the place. Well, the sound effects and the, the special effects the sound that they have for the, for the insects. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, and the fact that they were six—they uh, were already six feet tall. So, well, you know, that was so that's a nice subversion right there. And then they just get even bigger. Now, it sounds like Kumanga was always huge. Yeah. So yeah, that would make sense. It was not already huge. And if you would expand underneath the dirt, he would have been exposed. But he was still right. buried. Right. So he was enormous. And also it also makes sense that he, maybe he always was unaffected because he was buried. Right. So he wouldn't have gotten the effects. Right. So. Well, Mason, then that might be kind of an interesting question. Then what did he live on? Because at, at that size ratio, the Camacras might have been the original Camacras size would have been too small for him. So what else did he eat? Yeah, maybe that's why he sleeps all the time. Yeah, it's a torpor, you know. <laughs> it's to con conserve energy. <laughs> I, uh, I, I don't know. It's kind of like <clears throat> I, I've read essays where people say, like, the ecology of Skull Island makes no sense. Sorry? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> trust me there are kaijuologists that still haven't been able to figure it out <laughs> i actually have a much of skull island you know because i recently watched king kong i have a theory that could also work for Solgel island as well because if you go back the last glacial maximum was only twenty thousand years ago and so in which case the sea levels would have been much lower so some of those islands could have been much larger regions and even interconnected in which case you would have had other animal life they could have lived on and so maybe that's the reason why, uh, as you said, why Kamango was sleeping so long, because who knows how long he's been sleeping. Mm -hmm. you know? Well, we get the... Sayako actually does say that, oh, that's Kumanga's valley. She's clearly had some experience with him. Yeah. Because she knows, like, that's a dangerous place. And it and he's scary, because spider. So... Yeah, so who knows how many other animals that might have been lost, or maybe are just... You know, right now hibernating underneath the sea. Once in a while, they come up the surface, and Kamanga grabs them, eats them, then he goes back to sleep. Oh, so he's an ambush predator. Yeah. Well, yeah. If you watch spiders a lot. That's usually how they are. They just, you know, move very rapidly. In fact, I was thinking last night, if they ever do, do want to recreate Kamanga, now that, that Toho has so much better technology, they may want to look at how spiders, you know, when they when someone gets stuck in their web, they charge very rapidly. And if you can somehow translate the, that into a giant spider, that would just be terrifying. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's already, it's already freakish enough when you see something that's about the size of a quarter doing that. Now, imagine something the size of a skyscraper, somebody just rushing out with its fangs raised up like two you know, knives and gouging it into somebody or something. Oh, uh, yeah. That, that, Spiders are nasty. Just want to yeah, throw that, that out there. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they, they, they're, they're very, they, they move in these spurts. And as I said, with, with technology when it's today, they could replicate that into whatever the latest Shin Kumunga, you know. Shin Kumunga, oh, good Lord. <laughs> <laughs> we yeah, already I, dealt with a, uh, with a giant spider <laughs> last month. <laughs> well, no, not just last, not last month, a couple of weeks ago, to, you know, with Jiju Guai. So, you know, I'm a little well, spidered I, out right now. <laughs> so I'm going to sum up my theory, you know. So, okay, so that last glacier melted away 12,000 years ago, and that's when the sea levels rose. And for monsters, you know, you could play around with how long they live, and so 12,000 years may not be that long of a time for them. Mm -hmm. And so there I said, there could be all these lost ecologies that are just underneath the surface of the ocean just waiting to be rediscovered. Oh, yeah, for sure. But it's funny that you bring up fan theories. I have one as well related to this movie. Has to do with, and we'll have to talk about this ugly little spud. 
but Minya, because people have wondered, it's like, he was born in 1967, and he looked exactly the same in 1999, Destroy All Monsters, and he still doesn't look all that much different now, so what the heck? There's been some meaner takes on it, but my theory, and I'll have to confirm with the Monster Island scientists about this, I think since he didn't really show up again until 1999. My theory is that between 1967 and 1971, Godzilla thought out first, woke up, and Minya took a longer nap <laughs> under the ice. And then by about 1999, he thought out. <laughs> well, that's a perfect theory. You know, it's kind of like you know, like Buck Rogers, you know. He didn't, you know, was frozen for 500 years. And so. Yeah, why not? Uh, and it, and it's a premise of the, the Minya TV show. He wakes up 40 years later to have the same montage. Instead of like uh, uh, Buck Rogers kind of falling through time, you have Minya going, ah! <laughs> yeah, there you go. The same theme music with William Conrad's voice narrating, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> that's that's how I you know try to explain. Like I said, I'll talk to the scientists and see if well, I can okay. confirm that or not. Yeah, here's something kind of dovetail on your theory, because, you know, now Haruo Nakajima now donned the suit again for destroy all monsters in which case he was not as tall as the actor who played godzilla for son of godzilla so now the height difference is not as great as it was so you can say okay media may not have changed much as far as his facial appearances but he did gain a little in height he did grow a little yeah uh, that would actually make sense that would actually make sense but yeah there were two other actors besides nakajima which should be mentioned here who donned the godzilla suit so I'm just trying to look up their names here really quick because they aren't necessarily well-known. Yeah, one of them actually played one of the Gargantuas and wore the Gargantuas. Yeah, their names were Koji Onaka, who was also a baseball player. And yeah, he was very tall. Nakajima did the water scenes with one of the older suits in this. And then Onaka did it until he broke his finger. <laughs> and then a guy named Hiroshi Sakita also donned the suit with this one. So they are part of the Godzilla suit acting legacy. It's just nobody really talks about them. <laughs> yeah, I was kind of peeking myself as kind of verifying who, who, which one broke his finger. So what's the big... Yeah, it was yeah, Onaka. Right. It was, yeah, it was the baseball player because I guess he was playing a baseball game, you know, while filming was going on and he hurt his hand. He broke a couple fingers. Mm -hmm. So they had to get the pinch hitter in there to take over. You know. Yep. The, the, the reason that they didn't use Nakajima is because... They, we may as well talk about it since we're already talking about the suits. I don't care what anyone says. This is the ugliest Godzilla design ever of all time. I do not like this one. This is my, this. I know I, some people might say, yeah, beat me to it. Sure. I'm basic. All right. <laughs> uh, it, this is my least favorite Godzilla suit. I hate, I call it Frogzilla. Because <laughs> that's what it looks like. And it, it's really, really pudgy. Some people might say, oh, it's Godzilla sporting the dad bod. No, that's not what they were doing. They were trying to make Godzilla look more maternal. So they made him fatter. I don't, that's, <laughs> let that sink in. They thought making Godzilla fatter made him look maternal. I'm not touching that can of worms. <laughs> well, it that, that, that's quite so bad because, you know, Godzilla had a larger girth before, you know, you go from King Kong versus Godzilla on back, you know, he was much, you know, pudgier, fatter monster. But the thing is, is the face, the face was horrible. Oh my gosh. They did that to make it look more like Minya. And I'm like, I think that says something about the Minya design more than anything. We'll talk about 
you know, like we'll talk about him here in a second too. Yeah, but I know that logic, but I would refute their logic because you know Minya's being an infant. You know his face can you know because if you look at baby dinosaurs, their snouts are shorter than the adults, so you wouldn't necessarily have to now go take Godzilla's head and shorten it, you just because Minya's face is short. Yeah, it's just it was, the choices that were made in this are just highly questionable, to say the least. Yeah, I I don't like this suit. I really, really do not like this suit. I mean, that suit makes it hard for me to rewatch this movie, even though it is a very good movie. It's like, I don't want to look at that that suit. It's just (sighs) awful. Yeah, it's just just so weird because Quebecers and Kumanga look great. And the star of the movie, Godzilla, looks awful. The only good thing I say about the suit is way they the the animation of the eyes was very nicely done. So they yeah. were, instead of being a, a snap open, snap close, they actually can have it open slowly or whatever and make expressions with the with the rate in which they open up, whether he's tired or if he's you know angry and he's blinking fast. And that 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 part was done well, but yeah, always the overall shape. Oh man. <laughs> oh yeah, it's awful. Which is funny because they're using I believe it's the invasion of Astro Monster suit for the water scenes, and that's actually Nakajima. Correct. <laughs> so I was like, why didn't you keep that one? And they, apparently, the funny thing is, they didn't reuse that suit. Well, not it makes a cameo in Destroy All Monsters, and then I guess it was used in some of the water scenes in the 70s movies. But mm-hmm. they're like, you know what? We just made this thing, but we're not using it again. So make a new suit for Destroy All Monsters, please. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, but yeah. All right. Let's talk about the whiny elephant in the room. <laughs> Minya. Frickin' Minya. Uh, uh, he is the Jar Jar Binks of the Godzilla franchise. <laughs> among the, in I'm sorry, but it's the best analogy I could use. Okay. I'm sorry that the Phantom Menace traumatized you. <laughs> Oh, that was a classic Star Wars fan. Yeah, yeah, there you go. <laughs> but but the uh, well, thing is, is that, now you are aware that in Japan, the opinion is different. They actually like that particular character. I know, so, I know. Yeah, I, I think part of the, I think, honestly, I think there's more animosity toward Minya in the American fandom or the Western fandom, I should say. Because of Godzilla's Revenge or All Monsters Attack, which title, whichever title you prefer, I think that's where it stems from more. And Son of Godzilla just inherits some of it, yeah. even though this is actually the character's first appearance. So I think that's mostly the issue. But even here, I think I don't know. It, it's just weird. I th- I guess some people just don't like the idea of Godzilla having a son, you know. And some people are, are like, Is, did Godzilla lay this egg? No, I think it's a pretty clear that Godzilla didn't lay this egg. It's another Godzilla egg that had been buried for however long. And he was crying for help. And then Godzilla just instinctively comes over to help the little critter. So he adopts Minya. Well, here's a thought. I don't know if there's, this has already been discussed in other fan circles. What if the Kumaga ate the original parents? That would make sense, actually. You should submit that theory to the Monster Island scientists. They're like, ooh. <laughs> we're sending another expedition to Solgo yeah. to look for those bones. <laughs> well, you know, Kong and all the, the, the new monster first Kong has his ancestors, and so mm-hmm. and uh, or, or well, also they established there were other Godzillas in the monster mm-hmm. first. So 
uh, here as well. Yes, for sure. So I'm willing to go with that. So it's not a literal son. It's an adopted son, which is, you know, which is fine. But good grief. Some of the essays I read on this movie, mm -hmm. the descriptions people have of this poor guy. Some, some of them range from, you know, but kind of funny to just downright mean. Like, just to give you a couple of interesting examples, according to David Callett, critic Don Glutt said Minya looked like, quote-unquote, something out of a medical book of human freaks. <laughs> <laughs> Gold, well, no, and then John, well, by the way, John, I think, John, this is a great, I think, analogy here. He said that this Godzilla suit was the George Lazenby of the franchise. <laughs> That was Jalamare, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. In case you don't know, George Laz uh, George Lazenby was the name of an actor who played James Bond in one movie. Yep. Honor Majesty's Secret Service. Which is actually a fantastic movie, I have to say. I think that one's grossly underestimated. But, you know, he had to come in right after Sean Connery. Good luck with that. So, you know, because this suit was used once and never really used again. So he that, that was his analogy. But <laughs> uh, John... He said that he looks like a cross between the Pillsbury Doughboy and a dinosaur. I think I've seen that that description in some of the old G fan letters. You know, they they you know use the Pillsbury Doughboy. You know, right? But those are those are kind of the nicer ones. And then you yeah. then you read Stuart Galbraith when he wrote this book, the Japanese science fiction, fantasy, and horror films. He was. You must have been in a bad mood. That's all I'm saying, because he's he's got some spicy takes in that book. And here's one for you. He describes, I'm sorry if this creates a horrible image in, in your heads, kaiju lovers. He described Minya as a cross between a tadpole and a deformed human fetus. Oh, I think I remember hearing that. Wow. <laughs> wow. But I think another reason that it's not just the design that bo that bothers people. I think they also, and maybe even some of the execution, because he's really whiny. He's really whiny, especially when he's first born. He can't he can't even walk. He can barely crawl when he's first born. And I'm like, you know what? That that actually makes some sort of sense. It's because the Kamakuras apparently spend all night because you know. We have a, it looks like a, a night passes between when they first find the egg to when they make it hatch. And I'm like, have you guys yeah, seriously yeah. been so single-mindedly trying to peck at that egg? <laughs> well, well, you know, actually, uh, that, that, that's not, you know, insects can be very, very, very I mean, real life insects can be very, very patient. And yeah, yeah so, for sure. So, but editorial cut too, you know? Right, just, yeah, it could be an editing issue. I'm not sure. But the, what I'm saying is... <laughs> I, they break him out of it. He doesn't hatch himself, which might explain why he's kind of pathetic at the beginning because, and this is something that I've heard that you have to tell little kids if they say, go visit a farm and they see, you know, chickens hatching or something like that. They say, don't help them out of the egg. They need to break out of the egg themselves because it helps to develop their muscles. It helps them to develop strength. So that way, when they do get out of the egg, they're strong enough to just get up and walk. Well, poor Minya didn't have that privilege. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe he was a preemie too. I don't know. But <laughs> he did kind of look like one. He, he kind of did look like one. He, he, he needed a few more. He needed a few more minutes to cook. You know. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> the Kamakaris has got him out of the oven too early. <laughs> but I think another reason people don't like it is because Minya is very anthropomorphic by design. Yeah. And it was another step in the continuing trend of softening Godzilla and making him more anthropomorphic at this point in the series. So I think some people take umbrage with that. So I think there's multifaceted, re- well, not multifaceted, I think there's multiple reasons why. What's your take on him? Well, a person, when I saw him as a kid, I liked Minya, because I was a, a huge dinosaur fan. So when I saw Minya, it was like, oh, hey, this is, you know, I can see what, what Godzilla looked like when, when it was an infant, you know, of his species. You can see part of the life cycle. So I was really fascinated with the media character when I was a kid. So I was rather so when I got hand, got my hands on G fan, you know, that's during the inter, the early internet days where all us fans now from the seventies and the sixties and eighties can get contact with each other. So I was surprised to find out that most of the fandom did not like Minya. I was like, really? I thought he was rather kind of a fascinating character. So yeah, I don't you know. I think it gets down to a very simple thing: is he's not that cool. I mean, mm-hmm. he's not like draw who's who's aesthetically pleasing to look at. He doesn't have a lot of great superpowers. He doesn't destroy cities. There's he, he does not have that wow factor. I think you know most Godzilla fans want to see pyrotechnics. You know they want to see monster battles and they want to see something that can handle that kind of rigor. And Minya is just not for that. Minya is more of a character-driven, softer, gentler, kinder story. You know, people would rather watch Invasion of the Astro Monster than than something like this. Mm-hmm. And so, so Minya is definitely as a, as a sidetrack from the type of epic, you know, type of movies and epic type of monsters that they want to see. Because mm-hmm. it, it it turns into it's kind of personal, you know. It's it's father and son at this point, which I think there are some fans because they are parents, mm-hmm. they enjoy they enjoy that aspect of it. But I mean, let's be honest, Godzilla is a dad, dadzilla, if you want to call him that. Yeah, thank you, Jimmy. But Jimmy's gonna keep his hands away from the buttons there. He's gonna... Yeah, for sure. But <laughs> what's your take on Godzilla's parenting style? Because he's kind of mean. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it really fits them. You know, you kind of look at from you know, this is you know the second generation Godzilla. You know, the same Godzilla from Godzilla raids again. And uh, that was not a very nice monster like they did in Guras. You know. Just, mm-hmm his throat open and set him on fire so you know he's it wasn't until like either three had a monster that he was starting to soften a bit but that was more like he was did it's kind of like that whole thing with mothra and Ghidra is kind of like you know he's does, doesn't like bullying and mm-hmm. so that's what kind of that finally kind of reached in and kind of reached a, a, a maybe a kind of a anti-hero side to his character so you know so i where was i going with this so anyway yeah you know, so that's probably why he's still mean because he's still got that rough nature in him that's always been there for how many movies. Right. I also wonder if it's a if we're talking about some cultural differences here. I think for a lot of modern day Americans, Godzilla doing things like raising his hand as if he is going to strike the child, mm-hmm. which I'm sure for some people they're like, hit him, hit him. <laughs> well, you know, you, you're absolutely right about that because they 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 hinted that in the screenplay with the script. They they they, they attribute Godzilla being what they call a study mom or something. One of these mm-hmm. really strict parents. Yeah, it depends on the translation. I think the Sony DVD says education fanatic, but I think in the Criterion subtitles, which I just want to say it again, 
I know some people complain about the about a lot of things with the Criterion set, and I do think those are legitimate criticisms, but you can't fault them for their subtitles. Their subtitles are really, really good. <laughs> yeah, so there's but, you know, in those subtitles, they he was compared to a strict parent, basically. Yes. How is there are some Japanese parents who don't let their kids have fun? Yeah, exactly. And there's they actually have a coin names for those kinds of parents. Like Mamagon, for example, is one of those. <laughs> that comes back later. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because yeah, yeah, I was doing some research this morning for this film, and yeah, the Mamagon go, goes back to the 1960s around the time of this movie, and it was kind of referring to these parents who were so strict, they're almost monstrous, you know? Yeah, yeah. So I wonder if there's a little bit of that, but it could just... I just look at it as tough love, because let's be honest... Minya is kind of an obnoxious child. Yeah, you know, he throws tantrums. It's you could just see Godzilla's like, oh, really? Because well, he just like he, like he just throws he just throws a tantrum, yeah. falls on the ground. It's like <laughs> Godzilla just grabs his tail and drags him away. It's like okay, child. <laughs> yeah, well, you have to remember too. You know, they they live in a far more rougher world than we do. They live out in the wild where it's killed or be killed. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, you have to have some kind of strictness to it. Which, right. If you don't mind kind of segueing a little bit here, that's one thing I, I like about this movie, because you actually now see the monsters in their own habitat. Mm-hmm. Not just Godzilla, but also the, in, the insects and the spider. And as I, I really wish I was seeing this when I was under the age of 12, and these monsters were such a huge deal to me. That's how I would have viewed this movie. It's like, wow, I can see them now in their own natural habitat and how mm-hmm. they behave. I'd be watching in, you know, stark fascination. Mm-hmm. It's also kind of a shame that why a lot of fans are so harsh, or at least I don't know how many they are, but they're so dismissive of the, this movie and of Minion because it does kind of you see what the monster's life are like. It's a different side of things rather than the city smashing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think Phil Hogan gets a lot of credit for actually segueing that way because you're at a time now in the 19, late 1960s where the monster on the loose plot has been done to death. And now you have to come up with something new. And what do you do? Mm-hmm. What else can you do with animals? Well, animals give birth, animals eat, animals sleep, you know, animals raise their young. All those things you see on the wild is replicated here. Although, yes, anthropomorphic, you know, if I pronounce that word right. Yes. You know, but but that again, this is also a movie. Mm-hmm. And so you have to make it appealing to the audience and you know, that's be relatable to the audience. Mm-hmm. So you can't you can't have a strict animal behavior because then there'd be like, you know, people start falling asleep. Well, which is funny because Masaru Sato did the score on this. Not his first Godzilla film. He's done a few others. Uh, he, he was at, uh, he did Godzilla Raids again was his first one. And then the yep. previous one, he also did. So he took over, you know, he's the B team guy, yeah. you know, from Afuka Bay. So he did the music here. And one of the essays I read actually described his music as being something you would hear in a National Geographic documentary. <laughs> <laughs> which that was an interesting way to put it maybe, maybe a disney documentary i mean it, it is it's very very jazzy <laughs> which yeah. was his style but the other interesting thing since you're talking about anthropomorphism I, from one of john's books i actually found something where sato said quote godzilla can't act right therefore i had to express his feelings through music <laughs> End quote. So his goal was to humanize Godzilla, unlike Fukube. Mm-hmm. Fukube preferred to treat Godzilla as this big mythic thing, you know, yeah. where he sought to do something very different. And I mean, it doesn't take you long to realize that his 
musical style is also very different from a Fukube. It's more pop inspired. It's very jazzy. That really comes to fruition when you get to his last Godzilla film, which is Godzilla versus Mechagodzilla. That is super jazzy. (laughs) Well, and it it works for that kind of, for that particular movie too. Mm -hmm. For that particular story. Mm -hmm. I'm just glad they didn't get over for the next one. Right. Terror of Mechagodzilla, that would have been a good match. (laughs) Right. Yeah, no, no. No, you fight me, Michael. Terror of Mechagodzilla is still the better of the two. <laughs> yeah, that's one of his things we argue over because he loves Mechagodzilla 74 and I prefer Terror. So <laughs> not, not that I don't like the other one, but, you know, <laughs> but I'm also a little partial <laughs> well, that was introduction. because that was my first Godzilla film. And Tomoko Aizu, that right there. Is I mean, right yeah, there. that right there. That right there. <laughs> but... Yeah, so we have all of these interactions, and I I think if you can get over the anthropomorphisms and look at it for what it is, take it for what it is, it's actually, it's a weirdly endearing story, Mm -hmm. especially when you get to the end, which is the other interesting thing. This has has so much Sekizawa all over it, the reporter character, the humor, we talked a bit about the humor, it's even a little crass uh, this time around, which is kind of funny, Mm -hmm. (laughs) and he was a master. One of the things that he did that revolutionized this, and I'll, I'll, I'll say it again, was he was the one who said, let's have the human and kaiju plots be separate but concurrent with each other. Let's have them run parallel and then cross yeah. over at important plot points. And that's basically what we have here. But the human story is played straight, and the monster and the monster story is the one with all the slapstick and the humor for the most part. I mean, there's some there's some milder humor in the human story, but you want the, you know, the crazy stuff. You that's the monster plot line, but you have father and son battles with all of the insects. Minya comes into his own. He does learn how to breathe fire before he had to be under extreme stress to do it. And then he, yeah. he's still under extreme stress. Cause he's like, I'm going to die. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> but at least he got it to work. So, you know, kudos to him. It is kind of sad that he breathes fire. Like dad was teaching it, but dad's asleep. <laughs> so he's like, oh, God, dad, I did it. He did Oh, he's asleep. Yeah. <laughs> but then well, they, they defeat Kumanga together at the end, which yes. is very nice. And then you have that really, really touching sequence when the island is freezing over, the snow is coming out. The fact that we have snow, I just want to point out, that's extraordinary because I've, I've seen more kaiju snow effects on TV than I have in movies. Yeah. So it doesn't happen very often. So this this is a bit unique here. And what's funny is there was a deleted scene where Godzilla was planning on just leaving, which mm-hmm. really made him look awful. There was like whole, there were whole deleted scenes of Godzilla just being mean to Minya and they cut them. <laughs> I know what scene you talk about. The deal was is that he was going to go I mean, he was, no matter what, it was in the script, he was going to turn around. But the thing is, he was going to, they were going to wait until he was out in the ocean before he decides to turn around. Right. You know, and so they decided the last second, like, well, maybe they're going to make him seem a little too rough, so we'll have him turn around sooner. Right. Yeah. I see the still of that, of him filming where Godzilla. It's in the trailer. Yeah, you're right. Yes, correct. You know, he's climbing down the water. So what do you think of the snow, though, particularly when the water's freezing? Wasn't that impressive? It was impressive. But, you know, the effects are great in it. I really, I, I, like I said, the I think the effects in this are grossly underappreciated, but the emotional core that you get to at that scene. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It is I mean, so, it is remarkably good. And you have to remind yourself, 
these are two guys in rubber suits, all right? And they are just getting so much emotion out of this. And I have a feeling if you're a parent, it probably hits you even harder. Because <laughs> it's it's just little little Minya is struggling. He's like, it's cold. I don't know what to do. Help me. Help me. He's crying out. And then Godzilla goes over all he really, he just, he hugs him. And they fall asleep together. Yeah, well, you know, in the way this is kind of Minya is, is the victorious monster because he finally broke Godzilla's heart exterior mm-hmm. and brought out his compassionate side. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, it's, it, it's touching. It really is. For a movie that it points is, is admittedly a little silly, especially with the earlier scenes with Minya. I mean, come on. Come on. You have to be... Your hatred of this little spud has to run very, very deep if yeah. you're not going to be touched by this final scene i'm sorry (laughs) that might be a test for sociopathy (laughs) right there show them that scene and dare them to not be touched by it if they aren't touched by it you might want to consider getting another friend because they're going to be a super villain eventually (laughs) keep the puppies and kittens away from that person yes (laughs) keep everything away from that person (laughs) Yeah. yeah You don't want them pushing your grandma in the wheelchair around. You know? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, but uh, so I, I got to say, I love that final sequence. And so more, like I said, credit has to be given where it's due. We should mention, since we're talking about suit actors, <laughs> Minya was actually played by a midget pro wrestler. Just no, okay? I don't care if some people are offended by that, okay? The, the, the word is perfectly fine, okay? He's a tiny person, okay? His name was Little Man Machin. Mm-hmm. And they brought him on because he was athletic and could do the tumbles, and he was good at exuding childlike energy. And he was 46 years old when he put on that rubber suit. Can you imagine being Go back? figure, huh? <laughs> that age of being bouncing around the way he did. I would have figured he was must have been like in his late 20s, early 30s, the way he hopped around in that costume. He was nope. 46. Well, being a professional wrestler will do wonders for you. <laughs> yeah, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. I'm gonna. Get, and he played Minya in All Monsters Attack, too, if I remember correctly. Yeah, he played Minya all the way through. He really? Through. Even in Final Wars? Oh, oh, wait, 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 wait. I've talked about the three movies, you know, you got... The Straw Godzilla, Monsters, right. Godzilla's Revenge, those three. Yeah, okay. I was going to say, I'm pretty sure that wasn't him in Final no, Wars. No, 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 that was somebody else. That, was, that had to be somebody else. Although, <laughs> well, almost as amazing, you may already know this, and maybe this has come up in your notes, is that, oh, gosh, the, guy, the guy's name again, the actor who played Minya. He, he played the... Little Man Machin. Yeah, play, played the, the miniature Pogasari, in the movie Pogasari. Oh, then, yeah, that's right. 85. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's another movie that's slated for this season. I'm not looking forward to going to North Korea for obvious reasons. <laughs> <laughs> I make no apologies for my North Korea jokes. <laughs> well, the whole world's getting a little dicey. There's almost no safe place for you to go anymore. Uh, it feels like it. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, we spent all this time talking about the monsters. We mentioned some of the actors. We talked a little bit about Sayako and Goro. I want to park on them again a little bit more this time. So you know, the two most interesting ones, obviously, are two young people. Mm-hmm. What's funny is it does actually sound like if you listen to how, if you watch it in Japanese, you listen to how she says her name, because in the dub, they changed her name. And I can't confirm this, but my theory is, 
is they probably thought that the way she says her name in Japanese sounds way too close to the English word psycho because it's psycho. Yeah. She says it so fast that it sounds like she says psycho. And so they're like, you know what? That's a, that's going to come across as an unintentional pun (laughs) in English, which is funny because this is a few years before the movie psycho that I think really popularized the word Mm because that movie opens with a dictionary definition of the word. (laughs) (laughs) Like nobody knows what it is. (laughs) <laughs> and so they changed her name to Reiko, just like they changed two of the monsters' names as well. But yeah, she is the native girl. She's the eye candy. She's very pretty. And June Fukuda said in an interview that he said Miss Maida was kind of difficult to work with. <laughs> I'm kind of curious what that, that was like. Yeah, <laughs> she I'm was the only girl on this set. She's hanging out there with a bunch of boys. <laughs> Yeah. I'm guessing she was able to handle herself pretty well, despite being the only woman on the set. <laughs> what is she in other two Fukuda movies too? So it's like they had to get along at some on some level. Yeah. yeah, you would think so. But she was only like 18 in this movie. I wonder if they tried to get Kubi Mizuno to do it because she was Dio in the previous movie, but they're probably like, yeah, she already did the Native Girl once. So yeah. <laughs> but the thing that's interesting about her is that. She's in that quote-unquote role, but she's not a quote-unquote native girl. That's the fascinating thing. Now, she's native because she's never been to actual Japan. She's She was born out in the field, and she's just lived out there her, her whole life. Her father was an archaeologist, and she said her mom died during childbirth, and then her dad raised her, and they were just out in the field all the time. And then her dad died seven years before because he was on the island studying some stuff and she's been surviving on her own for seven years and even their leader is just like i don't know how you did that and they just leave it at that so you know I, we don't need to know the details we just need to know she was clever enough to be able to do this so she's kind of naive and you know but she also knows how everything works on the island but she's just naive about everything about the outside world which actually i think makes her endearing yeah, well, she was a bit of a Tarzan character. They had one point where she was kind of leaping off a branch on a vine. Yep. I remember, very briefly, when they put the spotlight on her, you know, mm-hmm. and off she went. And she can call to the animals, specifically the monsters. Yeah. She befriends little Minya and proves that once she gets back to Japan, she needs to join a baseball team because, man, can she throw! <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, we're doing a circus with knife throwing there, you know. The, the knife throwing and the fruit. She throws the fruit to Minya a couple of times. She's yeah. she's like the mom he never had, almost. <laughs> you know? But she's well, kind well, of... But she's no pushover. She's kind of feisty. She she stands up to the boys pretty well. You know? Well, you're not full of monsters, you know, because you remember the... Pay- she was there and the romances were basically her hype. Mm-hmm. And you, know, you have to go and contend with those things. Mm-hmm. You know, there yeah. probably were more than just three of them there. Mm-hmm. And you, she's definitely, she definitely knows the island very well. She's very competent. You know, when they're wandering around where Kumanga is sleeping and <laughs> Goofy Goro is tripping a little bit, knocking rocks. And he does it twice. And she's like, be careful. Okay. He's sleeping down there. <laughs> and she's traversing the terrain. Like, you know, she's walking on, you know, flat ground and he's the one who's struggling. I'm like, you know what? I bet it's, it, that's obviously because she's been here for a while. She knows how to do this. <laughs> it's contrast the city boy versus, you know, the, the country girl. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The country girl, the native girl, you know? Yeah. The native girl. But she, well, like I said, she's not technically a native. She's just survived there. She's a survivalist, basically a little Tarzan ish, 
You yeah, mm-hmm. you could say. And she never been to Tokyo because she asked Gore's like, what to- what's Tokyo like? And she's like, oh, I can't wait to go there and things like that. But like I said, she stands up to those boys. You know, she she gets she pulls a knife on Goro, <laughs> and she because he she stole his shirt off from the clothesline. <laughs> And she's like, hey, that's my shirt. It's like, no, it's not. Boys don't wear red shirts. <laughs> just, <laughs> that just makes me laugh because I'm just like, that just shows how silly you are. Okay. Oh, well, naive, I should say. Not silly. How naive you are. <laughs> uh, now, I, do, I think I'm still a little more partial to Dio personally, but mm-hmm. I, she's a nice spin on what you could say is a little bit of a cliche character, especially at this point. Yeah. So, what'd you think? Well, I think you kind of just covered her right there. I, you know, I got some like little comments and everything. You know, she was just basically kind of a, a spin on, on the Tarzan character. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was, kind of the more you think about this character and think about the setting, there's a lot of like, you know, little fan theories and fan stories you can spin off this because now, go back to the praying mantises. Now, you you know, usually in an ecosystem, the the prey way outnumbered the, the predators. And so, what else was on this island? that the mantises are preying on that she had to contend with because even, even an herbivore can get aggressive. So like I said, she probably, that's probably why although the men didn't really frighten her at all because they don't have any sharp appendages on them. They don't have any sharp teeth, you know, and they're human like her. And so why should she be intimidated since she's, you know, contended with so many other creatures we hadn't seen on camera. Mm-hmm. And then Goro, like I said, Sekizawa loved reporter characters. They're all mm-hmm. over his scripts. And yeah. He's so he this he's pretty typical of those scripts, but he's younger. He's a bit younger yeah. compared to the previous reporters that we've seen before. And I think the characterization here is a little bit different. The previous reporters that he was writing about were ones who were just doggedly chasing the truth. And I think he's in it a little bit more for himself by comparison because he's like, I'm coming here because I want a big scoop. Yeah. I'm here to get a big story. And I think the scientists are kind of like, yeah, we see what you're doing. So you get KP duty. You're going to stay. You're going to earn your keep. You get KP duty. I hope you're a good cook. <laughs> He's the prototype to Carl Kochak. who's always looking the Night Stalker. He's always looking for a story. Yeah. yeah. Well, and it, it, it's so funny. It's so funny because when they first meet, he, was, he just sits there. He kind of pouts. You know, he's like, I'm not moving until I get a story. Hmm. And yeah. he just sits there and just frowns. He's got food in front of him for like what seems like hours and he just won't touch it. Yeah, just like a little kid. I'm going to hold my breath. Yeah, I'm going to hold my breath. And then what's hilarious is he he kind of looks at it. He, he kind of starts reaching for it. But then the the scientist team starts coming out of the door. He says, nope, not touching yeah. it. And then they come over. He's like, okay, fine. You can stay, but you got to be the cook. He's like, okay. And then he starts eating. <laughs> And then, obviously, by movie logic, you get two young, attractive people on screen. Of course, they have to pair up, you know? So I think yeah. there's an implied attraction. They just mm-hmm. never they just never follow through with friendly. it completely. Yeah, it's very fr- family-friendly. It's no Blue Lagoon, you know? It's- <laughs> Blue Lagoon? <laughs> I barely know that that exists. <laughs> well, I guess if you're from the 80s, you might know, but... Uh- <laughs> I the, that's a little awkward. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess you can edit that post-production. Really, Jimmy? You saw it back in the day.
I don't care if it was one of your favorite movies, you weirdo. <laughs> well, you had to watch something when he's out the orbit, you know? I, I, I guess. <laughs> Look it up sometime, kaiju lovers, if you don't know what we're talking about. You'll understand why I mean. <laughs> but but still, I there was a thing. I was actually saying, like, if this had been a more, quote-unquote, adult movie, they probably, like, when we meet Sayako, when Goro's out exploring the island... And she when he meets her, she's swimming, but she's wearing her, you know, her Tarzan getup. But I'm like, yeah, if this was an adult movie, she would have been skinny dipping or something, you yeah. know. <laughs> well, you know, romance in these guys of movies have always been, you know, very, very family friendly, very, very safe, like these early ones, you know. And very so like, oftentimes pretty subtle too. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, like like it, I was just about to get to that, Jimmy. Yeah, the first time anybody kisses in any of these Godzilla films was Glenda Namikawa. <laughs> it was yeah, a big was, deal. Yeah, that was like one of the rare exceptions. And then probably the only other romance that were, it got very you know intense was with you know, back in the Terra of Mechagodzilla. Yeah, but there still wasn't any kissing or anything in that. Well, no, I mean, fires where it was, you know, obvious we have a, a man who's in love with a woman. Right, right, right. But, uh, honestly, <laughs> but and then you had and then you had the 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 married couple in <laughs> Godzilla 2014 that who have a full out makeout session, and it's like, yeah, we got to make up for the fact that there's almost no kissing in these movies. So here you go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now that that's out of the way. <laughs> Now that we firmly established that they are happily married. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I always, yeah, you know, like I said, that was like, you know, one of the few romances where it's obvious that the man loves the woman who's pursuing her. Otherwise, like I said, it's always very subtle, implied. You have to kind of read into it. Right. It's kind of, it's a very Japanese way of doing it because trust me, I've watched enough anime and honestly tokusatsu at this point where they, I think it's just the Japanese thing. They just love the tension. It's, it's just, they don't let characters actually you know, like kiss or anything. It's, it's crazy how much they just drag it out. <laughs> it's almost, it gets a little frustrating sometimes. <laughs> well, even the opposite extreme with those Roman films, you know? So, oh, well, we're, we're not here to talk about those. <laughs> I know, I, 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 so you talk about Japanese culture. It's like, it's, it's like, you know, there's, there's like no middle ground. It's like this, these two extremes. You know? Yeah. It, basically. Now, there are a, you know, looking over my notes, I think we've covered a lot of the, th- uh, a lot of the stuff that I really wanted to make sure that we talked about. Uh, we did talk, uh, well, you know what? Actually, there's one really important thing that I think we should talk. We mentioned it in brief, but I want to exp- I want to unpack it a little bit more. But the screenwriter for this, for the first draft, who's the yeah. actual <laughs> first woman to write a Godzilla film. Because most people... And I did for years. I really did for years. Thought it was Yukiko Takayama, author yeah. of Terror of Mechagodzilla. But technically, she was the second. I think maybe the way we can kind of get around it a little bit is say that because the woman who wrote this, the first draft, her name was Kazue Shiba. I hope I said that right. I think what we yeah. could say is that Miss Takayama actually had her movie filmed <laughs> had her script filmed okay. whereas miss shiba did not necessarily yeah it got so many alterations it really didn't seem much like it's the same one. right I and and first- i i've talked with chris cook on one cross radio on a pair of godzilla unmade episodes where i unpack this a little bit more but i'll just mention a few things here in brief just to kind of show 
how some of what she came up with was in the final film, but a lot of it's really different. So her draft was called Two Godzillas Japan SOS. The whole SOS thing is very popular in these titles because yeah. a lot of unmade movies have SOS in the title and only one Godzilla film had SOS in the title, which is just funny, which was Tokyo SOS. So this yeah, is Japan yeah. SOS. So yeah, <laughs> but she just to give a little background on her. She was a lyricist, just like Sekizawa. Sekizawa, believe it or not, wrote the, the lyrics to Mothra song. So he was a songwriter as well as a screenwriter. And she worked with Sekizawa on a movie I've never heard of called Zero Fighter Dogfight in 1966. No, not the Ultraman clone that Toho made. Yeah. <laughs> not that zone fighter. <laughs> no, Zero Fighter, excuse me. Never mind. See, I beat you to the correction, Jimmy. But she had no insects. You mentioned that already. No spider in her draft. It was just Godzilla and Junior. Now, the weather experiments and all of that were in her draft. But some of the details are a little bit different. The first time that they do the experiment is on an island. The experiments fail. But then the monsters go to mainland Japan. And then they do the experiment again. And it, and it succeeds. And they stop Godzilla and Junior with it. So you, it, which kind of happens in this movie and Sayako is in it, but Goro is not. And in her draft, her father was still alive and he's the one who invented the weather control device. And junior is more serious than Minya. And Godzilla goes back to being the antagonist in this. And instead of Goro, like I said, the protagonist is a technician named Naoi. I hope I said that right. Naoi. And you might be wondering, well, why didn't this one get made? John theorizes, John LeMay theorizes that it was probably because there was a lot of underwater scenes in this in this script, both for Godzilla and the human characters. And they learned just how hard it was to do underwater scenes in the previous, <laughs> in the previous movie. So they're like, eh, maybe not. <laughs> yeah, it was all budget. Yeah, I it was a budget thing and, a, and, you know, just difficulty. And then you got the city miniatures being built, you know, that's right. And he also thinks that it might've also been because there's no real monster versus monster action in it because it's just Godzilla and junior. Funny thing is, according to John, the idea of Godzilla getting a son. Now we said, you know, it took 13 years from first movie to this movie, because this is the eighth movie in the Godzilla franchise. But the idea of giving Godzilla son actually, according to John goes all the way back to 1957 in a manga that was called Godzilla King of the Monsters, where there was a junior in that one. So the idea has been floating around for a while. They just didn't put it on film until this one, which is kind of interesting. And I think John actually has a whole section on one of his books dedicated just to the, uh, just dedicated to the manga adaptations of these movies, because sometimes they're a little different and radically different. Yeah. Probably just look up any of his unmade, you know. Oh, I love his unmade books. Yeah, you know, that's probably in there. Because mm -hmm. mm -hmm. I, I got all those in my bookshelf. Right. You know, well, there's also another thing, too. You know, when I was doing my research, you know, Tomoyuki Tanaka, he, right from the very start, he wanted to do a movie aimed at kids. And I imagine her script was, was again, going more hearkening back to the early 60s, 1950s type movies, whereas you had more of an adult or general audience in mind, and it wasn't really geared enough towards children. Right. 
that, that was probably, probably the right that point right there, you know, resulted in being axed. Well, right. here's the thing that's interesting. Now, if you go to the Japanese wiki page for Son of Godzilla, her name is still listed as co-writer. So she's still credited. Right. Well, I think they did give her co-writer credit in the credits. In the movie itself? Okay. I think I so. Up, I have to look up the, what the kanji is, how I can spot her name, you know. Yeah. Well, let me see. Uh, she's Well, she is credited here when I'm looking at the Wikipedia page for it. But it, it might have just been out, you know, just because she did write the first draft and they used some things from it, but not a lot of it. So it's more of a courtesy thing, which is why I'm surprised that you and I've talked about this, but Kimura, the other big screenwriter there, he technically wrote a draft of Godzilla versus Gigan that and some of what he wrote was used. But Sekizawa's script got picked and yeah. Kimura gets no screenwriter credit. And then basically after that, he never wrote another script again. So my theory is that he's that was the last straw for him, and he said, screw it, and just quit screenwriting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he had a pretty sad ending for it. He did, he did. If you want to learn more about that, go to the MIFV YouTube channel and look up the panel that Danny DeMana and I did at G-Fest in 2019 about Sekizawa and Kimura, the, uh, two of the unsung heroes of the Showa era, as far as we care, because screenwriters matter. Yes. <laughs> Screenwriters matter, but ourselves, yeah, we 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 kind of second that, you know. Yeah, for sure. But it's this. I was going to transition to something else, but you brought it up, so you're talking about the intended audience for this. We've already hinted at it a couple of times. It was meant for the date crowd. Yes, I know, people. This was a date movie. In all serious, people think this was a kids movie. It's not a kids movie. It was for it was for it was a date movie for young adults. Let that sink in a little bit there. But despite that, as John writes, it dropped one million admissions. Yeah, unfortunately. And but the funny thing was, it when it was picked up by the Walter Reed organization and then dubbed, it was shown on TV in 1969 at the same time that AIP released Destroy All Monsters in theaters. Yeah. So you got a Godzilla double whammy there. But just to let you know, you might be thinking, why is this a date movie? Well, it's actually because of Minya. So the date crowd. According to Wikipedia, quote, was a genre of films that were very popular among young couples during this time period, end quote. And they thought that girls would think Minya is cute. Yeah. Yep. And Jun Fukuda said, quote, we wanted to take a new approach, so we gave Godzilla a child. We thought it would be a little strange if we gave Godzilla a daughter, so instead we gave him a son, end quote. And here's something else. I think there is a deeply cultural reason why they did this. And it's a distinctly Japanese one. Neil, have you ever heard of the year of the fire horse? No, I haven't. Okay. I'm about to blow your mind here a little bit. Okay. <laughs> Strap in <laughs> Kaiju lovers, but the year of the fire horse. So I think this was a date movie because Toho might've been trying to counteract a little something, a superstition. A very Japanese superstition. So, the fire horse. Have you ever heard of a sexagenary cycle? No. I hope I said that right. It, it means every 60 years. It's a superstition. Yes. It's supposed to be something that happens every 60 years. It ha And one of those came around the year before this, 1966. The superstition stated that girls who are born during the year of the fire horse 
will eventually grow up and kill their husbands. Oh, wow. <laughs> mm-hmm. And the next one, just so everyone knows, will be in 2026. But I think at this point, the superstition has all been you know, dispelled at this point. So they're not really worried about it anymore. But it goes back to 17th century Japan. There's a, I've never heard of this woman, but apparently she's a bit of a popular figure. Her name was Aoya Oshichi. And you know, this is all the way back in the Edo period. She was supposedly born in 1666. And when she was about 18 or so, she tried to commit arson because there was a temple page that she had fallen in love with you know, the year before when there was a fire at the temple he was at. So she was trying to set another fire to get his attention. <laughs> And so she was burned at the stake for trying to do that. So they said that that's basically where it started. (laughs) Yeah. And it's, that's why it's called the fire horse because the superstition said there are many fires in the year of the fire horse. And, you know, so girls born during this are going to have a strong temperament and shorten their husband's life. (laughs) So how's that stud dovetails to son of Godzilla? Well, it's because the superstition was so prominent because it came around in 1966 and birth rates dropped by 25% in 1966. Okay, so some guys came out in 67. 67, because I wouldn't be surprised if they're like, you know what, we need to help those courting couples out a little bit. Let's make oh, a date I movie see. for them. There we go. <laughs> and we'll put, a, we'll put a cute baby kaiju in it. So all the girls are like, oh, he's so cute. I want one too. <laughs> and that's so funny is that the superstition like i said even at this point was so strong that there were local japanese governments that took action against it to try to combat it oh wow like just to give you one example i found several but here's here's one for you quote in november 1965 the yamagata district legal affairs bureau of the ministry of justice sponsored the quote fire horse banishment campaign <laughs> in oh, yes. Yamagata city. And on the 21st of the same month, a parade was held in the city to raise awareness of the issue. End quote. Boy, they take their superstitions yeah, seriously. Well, yeah, well, like, but they said like the next one is going to be in 2026, but they said like, they don't expect there to be any problems because you know, at this point it has been thoroughly dispelled because they're like, Guys, this is silly. <laughs> just have babies. Please just have babies. <laughs> but like the when it came around and I think I, was, I read, it's not in my notes, but I read it then in 1906, it, that there were some things that happened that year with the superstition. And then it was actually believed that 18 years later, <laughs> there were a lot of women who were, you know, they were of marriageable age at that point, born in 1906, and they couldn't get anybody to marry them. So they, so they just got super depressed and I think there were, you know, like there were notable suicides related to it because they're like, men have rejected me just because I was born in the fire of the fire horse. I've just, come on, guys. It's so sad if you step and think yeah. about it. <laughs> so there you go. Year of the fire horse, date movie, Godzilla, ugly oh. spud. <laughs> <laughs> it all comes together. <laughs> uh, the only other thing that I wanted to unpack a little bit is the idea of weather control as a sci-fi trope. Mm-hmm. So 
this is leftover notes from my previous podcast life. I think, you know, the whole idea of it, you know, goes back to, you know, to the ancient world. A lot of religions and mythologies and all of that came about because they were trying to explain the weather because humans can't control the weather and that they attributed that to the gods. Well, you know, you get to, you know, science fiction and all that. And with the scientific understanding of how weather works, there's interest in figuring out, oh, how can we manipulate the weather to our liking? David Callett, and I, I think he's a little off base with this, but David Callett was, went into this big, like the first half of it, like maybe the first quarter of his essay on this movie, it was just unpacking the whole scientist character in science fiction films and how there's, you know, there's two main archetypes, mad scientists and the scientific advisor and all of that. And he was trying to say that the whole idea of using science to tamper in God's domain, like we would normally say in American science fiction, you know, stems from the Christian influence, the, as he put it, the original, he called it original sin, anti-science. Yeah. You know, it says like, Oh, you should be messing around with this and you will be thoroughly punished for daring to, Make yourself equal with the gods and you know, all that sort of stuff. Whereas this movie's attitude is, yeah, we acknowledge the potential of it being weaponized, but we also think that the the benefits outweigh the risks here. And they're trusting that the UN will know what it's doing with that. You know, you know. Yeah. So they have more faith in 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 things like that. But it's again it goes back to the Godzilla series, very humanistic approach to things. That was definitely a Honda influence there. So it's continuing that in this. But like I said, the weather control, you know, you could look back even in Greek mythology, you have Iphigenia, the daughter of King Agamemnon, who was offered as a human sacrifice to appease Artemis because she becalmed the Archean, I think is how you say it, fleet. And then in Homer's The Odyssey, you have Aeolus, who is the keeper of the winds, and he gives Odysseus and his crew a bag filled with the four winds. So that gives them the ability to manipulate it. And then they open up the bag looking for money while Odysseus is sleeping. And then that throws the ship off course. So they dare tamper with the God's domain there. (laughs) And then these are just, you know, these are just a few examples of ancient tales where magic or rituals used to manipulate the weather, as I was saying. So that's how you would do it in the ancient days. You would use, you would have to use some sort of supernatural power to have any sort of command over it. And now we see the whole weather control trope is all over the place. And it's something that can be easily understood and utilized. In my experience, it's generally used either as just a part of the world building as a benefit to mankind or it's being weaponized. So, you know, we mentioned that, you know, that Son of Godzilla at least gives lip service to it. But David Callett basically says at this point, you know, he says the franchise is just throwing any pretense of art out the window, which I think is a little harsh. But, yeah, you know, and one and Mr. Bogue in one of my books said, like, yeah, it just gives, you know, like comic book style lip service. But I'm like, okay, but that's not really the main crux of the story here. Yeah, correct. You know, also, you know, you have to remember how things were historically, because a lot of people who are making these movies and the people who watch the movies survived World War Two. And and in so which case. There's a very strong anti-nationalist spirit because what caused World War II? Well, you had a very strong nationalistic spirit in mm-hmm. Italy, Japan, and Germany. So now people are, are looking at the United Nations as, a, as the antidote to the nationalistic spirit where now people can now work together. And plus, by having this United Nations body, they kind of think of it as a way of, of having like checks and balances between the countries. 
And so that's why it probably works with a lot of people at that time to say, okay, you got this device that could be weaponized, but it's being handled by the UN. So you have some checks and balances to keep it under control. For sure. So if you had just one country doing that, well, then there's time to be worried. Like in King Kong Escapes, you had just one country looking for Element X, and that was considered a bad thing. It wasn't the UN wanted Element X. It was this nebulous country, and they're going to, we're going to misuse it for nationalistic reasons. And so that right. was the, the feeling and attitude back then. So that's why that that trope you know, went under the radar for them. That was considered acceptable. Mm-hmm. But the idea is, I mean, if you stop and think about it, 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 and the scientists in this, they call it out. It's like, in the wrong hands, this is as bad as a nuclear bomb, if not worse. I mean, instead of nuking a city, you can just send a hurricane there to devastate it. It won't just be a city. It'd be an, it could be an entire nation. Mm-hmm. But they're doing it, as you mentioned, with positive applications in mind because they want to create more farmland so they can make more food because yeah. of with the ever-growing population. Now, the funny thing was, as I think in the Sony DVD subtitles, they were saying, oh, we're already kind of hitting critical mass with the population, but in the criterion set, they said, oh no, that, you know, it'll hit that in a hundred years. <laughs> you know, it's a little different. Yeah. Although I would say like, guys, just because there's desert and jungle, there are reasons that those exist ecologically mucking around with it may not necessarily be the best idea. You know, we've seen some ecological consequences by turning every piece of usable land into farmland. Not necessarily a good idea to do that. <laughs> all the time but you know those are some nuances that this movie just doesn't have time to get into right now (laughs) yeah it's a state movie anyway it's not uh you know right you know also i guess another way you can kind of think but you know you got got these futuristic societies and other science fiction films like well well, they had to go ahead and take some risk with technology at some point to get where they are right right now and just to give a few more examples of this and this is by no means an exhaustive an exhaustive list but it gives you an idea of kind of how it's used and how much it's used, you know, depending on the kind of story or the genre or whatever. But to give one that a couple that are, I should say, that are relevant to me and my childhood, you have the impeccably named Weather Dominator created by Cobra and G.I. Joe. Oh, yeah, I remember that. <laughs> and they're, they're the bad guys. They're terrorists and they're using it to attack various places on the earth. Okay. You know, so that's definitely a wrong hands application there. <laughs> but I just love that. The name, the name is genius. I'm sorry. It's the Weather Dominator. <laughs> <laughs> and then in the video game Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2, the arcade game, there's a spherical weather control machine that's used by the villainous Krang, and it plunges New York into a perpetual winter. Mm-hmm. And then when you beat the boss in that level, the turtles destroy it, and it instantly warms back up. And then the your turtle will walk over and say, Spring is here! <laughs> <laughs> okay. And then this is just a part of the world building. But in the Star Trek universe, there are a lot of planets, including Earth, that have weather control technology so they can maintain an idyllic environment. Mm-hmm. And that's why, if you watch Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home, when the mysterious Tootsie Roll from space <laughs> shows up, <laughs> that is a thing, guys. It's a probe. They have no idea where it came from, and it's just doing its thing. It's scanning, for we find out later, it's humpback whales, and it accidentally causes a worldwide disaster because it disrupts the 
Earth's ecology and they, their technology can't keep up with it. <laughs> so, you know, that's, you know, like I said, that's a world building example. And it's part of the impetus for the plot of that movie, but it's not the main focus necessarily. The main focus is travel back in time and find the dang whales. <laughs> yes. Because Star Trek. And then the game makers in the Hunger Games, both the movie series and the books, they could manipulate weather within the arena where the games take place, and they could change it on a whim to increase the drama. This is basically a blood sport that's being televised as propaganda, which is the the most interesting thing. But they could change the weather in this small, contained, controlled environment to you know whatever they think would be most interesting. Or I guess in some cases, you know, to play kingmaker and decide who wins. Because <laughs> you know, welcome to dystopia. <laughs> so let's just, you know, like I said, that's it's by no means an exhaustive discussion on it. But Son of Godzilla was definitely playing into that. And while it's paying lip, like I said, like while it's paying lip service to the potential bad applications, it's definitely citing on the more ideal, uh, idealistic side saying like, hey, there's plenty of benefits to this despite the risks, which is kind of interesting because they're using radiation to do it. And, you know, generally speaking, nuclear power is frowned upon in the Godzilla films. But here they're saying like, yeah, it can make monsters because this is the point where radiation is magic. <laughs> and it can do whatever it wants. But they're also saying, but we can use it for positive applications, which I do think goes back to the and kind of the ambivalence that the Japanese culture has when it comes to nuclear power, because they were obviously they're the only country that ever had nuclear weapons dropped on them. But on the other hand, for a long time, not so much now because of the Fukushima disaster, but for a long time, nuclear power was how they created their own energy because that was difficult to do when they're a modern country, but they're an island nation. So they have to import a lot of their energy, you know, coal and oil and such like that. But after the Fukushima disaster, they're very nervous about it and i understand why mm -hmm. so you know as usual japan is a country of catch 22s when it comes to that so i just think it's interesting that this kind of comic booky quote-unquote less artsy godzilla film is still playing into that ambivalence even if it's in a subtle way yeah any thoughts on that not a whole lot you know i mean i guess i thought i would have was is the response to that whole motif is that you know i think people are, are kind of looking for something to criticize in that movie you know because mm -hmm. it because you have to look at, you know, it's, it's it's a piece of entertainment, you know, and the focus is not, you know, being responsible with science. It's focus is, is, is the relationships, the father-son thing with the monsters, the boy-meets-girl thing on the human side. You know, that's more or less what they're looking at. And the, and the weather control thing is more of a plot device. I mean, it kind of helps save the day because, it you know, put the monsters in hibernation and and mm -hmm. so forth. You know, it's it's it's, it's, it's just window dressing. Yeah, but the here's the interesting thing. There were weather control experiments being conducted around the time the movie was released. Yeah. It was being oh, yeah. done by the US military and it was hilariously named Operation Popeye. <laughs> no, Jimmy, I don't know if they're referring to the Sailor Man. <laughs> Probably, but, it, but it was part of the Vietnam War effort. <laughs> it went, took place between March 20th, 1967 and July 5th, 1972. And the U.S. Air Force would fly three C-130 Hercules and two F-4C Phantoms 
two store two sorties a day from Thailand to Laos, Vietnam, and Cambodia cloud seeding. The goal was to increase the rainfall in North Vietnam to disrupt enemy supply trucks by softening the roads, causing landslides and washing out river crossings and saturating the soil. <laughs> and basically, they were trying to extend the monsoon season. <laughs> yeah. And it was supposedly sponsored by the sec- by Secretary of State Henry Kissinger and the CIA without authorization from the sec- from Secretary of Defense Melvin Laird among other things. That kind of sounds like our government, yeah. (laughs) And it led to congressional resolutions banning weather warfare in the (laughs) mid-1970s. Think about that. Think about that. The U.S. Congress had a session where they said, we're banning weather warfare. (laughs) And the U.N. did did get on this, too. They had the Environmental Modification Convention this was a real thing <laughs> in 1977 in Geneva <laughs> on something called the prohibition of military or other hostile use of environmental modification techniques. <laughs> Signed May 18th, 1977, took effect October 5th, 1978. <laughs> so there are both domestic and international laws against this now. <laughs> it's funny what, what you find if you dig hard enough. <laughs> yeah, that's- now I wonder how they're going to enforce these things. You know, I, that would be that would be interesting. You imagine trying to enforce those laws? You know, and say I got a search warrant. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you have what's the, on what charges? You caused a rainy day. <laughs> <laughs> you kept kids from going to school. <laughs> they all, we got several complaints from parents who said their restless children were stuck inside all day. <laughs> They're going to sue you for damages. <laughs> oh my gosh. I mean, it, it would at least be a funny story to tell when you go to jail, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what are you in for? I caused a rainy day. <laughs> Well, anyway, if you have no more thoughts on the subject at hand, I think we can start closing up shop. What do you think? Okay. I don't always want to talk about some of the history of, of when this movie, this Mayfire's. Oh, um, that's right. You had, uh, you had some stuff you wanted to share with us. Go, go ahead. Yeah. So anyway, so some of Godzilla, you know, came out in 1967 and I don't know how common this knowledge is, but that was during the first monster boom mm-hmm. and in the Japanese wiki pages say the monster boom went from like 1966 to 1968. So while I've there, you know, there's been two monster booms. The second one was 1971 to 74. And one thing I found interesting about both monster booms is that it seems like, you know, when when whenever they designate, okay, this is when it began. That's actually probably when the interest in giant monsters actually peak because throughout most of that monster boom, the interest kind of wanes. And you can see that right here, you know, with the first monster boom. I'll just quarrel some numbers here. So Godzilla versus Sea Monster came out in 1966. That's when the first monster boom started. They had an attendance of 3,450,000 people. And then the following year, 1967, you know, the, the middle of this monster boom, Son of Godzilla, only had 2,480,000. And then Destroyal Monsters, you know, got a slight bump, 2,580,000. And that movie delivered everything you want. You know, you have monsters versus weapons. You got sea destruction and monsters versus monsters. It had everything you want. And that still couldn't pull it in. 
and then at the same time when Son of Godzilla was in the movie. So let's say you were alive in 1967 in December and you wanted and you're excited that, hey, there's this Godzilla movie. Well, on TV at that time, you're probably also watching like Ultra 7. So Ultra 7 was on TV. Toei's Giant Robo, a.k.a. Johnny Soko was Flying Robot. That was on TV. And P Productions Kaiju Oji otherwise known as Monster Prince, was on TV. So you can you were, had these three shows available to you at the time the, um, that movie was out. So those are kind of you know, the, the highlights you know, of stuff that I found, like you know what was available on TV at the time when you got to see that movie. And then also the interest. Now here's another thing, too, that I find interesting, is that getting back to a point you made earlier about A-Team, B-Team. Because now from a Western perspective, Godzilla is indeed the king of the monsters. He's the most popular. But with my studies of these movies, I get the feeling that in Japan, Godzilla wasn't necessarily the king of the monsters. There was a strong interest in kaiju, but not necessarily in Godzilla himself. Because look at, like you said, the A-team was making War of the Gargantuas and King Kong Escapes. B-team was making Godzilla movies. And then prior to Son of Godzilla, who were the headline monsters? You know, you had King Kong versus Godzilla. Kong was listed first. Following year, you had Mothra versus Godzilla. Mothra was listed first. You know, so I, I just find that those, those little cultural aspects interesting. You know, that you know, you will contrast that how things were with us, where for us Godzilla is the number one most popular monster. But in Japan, I don't think I don't think Godzilla really had the level of popularity, or at least had the popularity that resembled our popularity until the 1990s. Because by that time, there was no other competition for Godzilla. And you have a new generation of kids being introduced to monsters. And the first one they got introduced to is Godzilla, just like us. So their experience is the same as ours. Mm -hmm. And that, that was the time now when Godzilla was all kind of the headline monster. Mm -hmm. And it, we hinted at this already. But the other thing is that 1967, it's called the year of the kaiju because every Japanese studio, every major studio released a Godzilla, well, not a Godzilla film, but at least released a kaiju film. Yes. Well, another thing, too, is, you know, like I said, 67 was the big matter year for movies. And then you also had all those TV shows throughout. And it's that year is also known as, of course, the, the apex of the monster boom. But even for TV audiences for Kaiju, we're, we're actually on the decline as well as for movies in 1967. Kaiju Prince didn't really do well for ratings. Ultra 7 was, you know, cut short. And then even Johnny Soko, which is popular today, only had 26 episodes. And what was slowly overtaking giant monsters at that time was animation. Like, for instance, Star Giants. And then there's also the sports boom. So Star Giants was basically an anime about baseball. And so that captured two different interests at once, the interest in sports and the interest in anime. So anyway, so, so Son of Godzilla came out at a time when, you know, the interest in giant monsters were going away and it's being overtaken by other interests. And so if people want to say, well, the reason why Son of Godzilla wasn't popular because it didn't have all the pyrotechnics as the other movies, well, that's patently false because the next movie was OD'd on pyrotechnics and you still couldn't pull in an audience. Right, right. It's it's an increase in competition. It's basically, I, I've said this before, it's like how superheroes are in the United States now. And I think those are on the decline now. I think the interest is waning at this point just not what it was there for a good decade or so where that was the hot commodity. So you have an increase in, like I said, increase in competition and 
changing interests. You know, went over this actually in the Ever Horror of the Deep episode. So there's a lot of reasons that all of this is happening. <laughs> it's really kind of, you know, too bad, you know, for us, you know, who love giant monsters to kind of see this interest in Japan, you know, waning because if the Japanese aren't interested and we don't get any more movies. And, and also on, on this too, you have to give Tomo, Tomoyuki Tanaka, man, a, a real nod because here's a time when, when interest in Godzilla, I don't think ever was that great, you know, back in the Showa era just monsters in general. So Godzilla is benefiting from an interest in monsters, not necessarily interested in him, but yet Tanaka's out there year after year, plugging on a movie, plugging on a movie, even when the interest in monsters are gone, the budgets are gone. And, you know, and that really gets apparent in the 1970s when you had the, when the second monster boom very rapidly turned into the transformation boom because of comprehension boom. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yep, and yet he was still just, just okay. Megalon did bad, but we'll do two more. We'll just keep going. You know. I mean, credit where credit is due. If Toho's other franchises died by 1970, well, when the Japanese film industry crashed, Godzilla kept Godzilla made five more movies. <laughs> yeah, you know, and, and you know, it's just to think if Tomoyuki Tanaka had done with what everyone else wanted to do, stop making these Godzilla movies. I mean, like uh, Honda was sick of them. If was sick of them, everyone was getting sick. And he was like the only one keeping this going. And uh, yeah, no, if he would have just went with the times and just sunsetted the series, you know, maybe as far back as, you know, Sea Monster, there's a lot of good movies we wouldn't have in our collection. This is true. This is true. But yeah, yeah, just, just to let you know what kind of competition you hinted at it a bit already, but Toho was so big. They made two because they also made, King Kong Escapes, but you also had Gamera versus Gauss from Daie, the X from Outer Space, which was double checking here. That was Shojiku. That was the first and only kaiju movie that they've made. And then you had Gappa, the triphibian monster made by Nikatsu, also the first and only kaiju film that they made. <laughs> and then it spilled over into Korea because you had Space Monster Wang Magui, which just got a release from SRS Cinema, long thought to have been lost. There, That will be covered on the show this year, I promise, <laughs> this season. And then you had one that's near and dear to your heart. Yep, Younguri. Younguri, Monster from the Deep, which is kind of Toei. Yeah. Kind of Toei, but not well, quite. I would love to talk about, because there's this stuff in there I'm thinking, did they like grab you know props and Gamera versus Baragon and ported them over because their stuff that looks so close. So that's another topic. For yeah, another it show. is. It is. And I think another interesting one, and maybe this can be a bonus episode or something at some point, or maybe a, oh, an MIFE live stream. I don't know. Let's talk about the year of the Kaiju and pick which of those six movies because we'll, I'll include the South Korean stuff. Pick which one of those was the best one of the lot. Yeah. Cause I, I, yeah, I mean, well, you look at those and, there's a lot of them, obviously, but I don't know how many of those people would necessarily list as a quote-unquote great movie. Yeah. Because <laughs> they yeah. all have quirks, to say yes. the least. And, and, and it's kind of sad and funny at the same time. I mean, look, at these things all got pumped out right after the interest was starting to burn out. I know, right? <laughs> movie studios always seem to be at least a little bit behind on yeah. some things. But got anything else? That was great. Yeah, well, um, 
I guess that that, that pretty much covers it. You know, I probably mm-hmm. just be beating a dead horse at this point. You know, going over my. I said I'm always just kind of fascinated about the history of this because I, I really got started when I did my Spectre Man 50th anniversary article, and that's when I found out about these monster booms, and then I found out like all these different things that are happening that are influencing you know the ebb and flow of all these shows. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, I said at this point I probably didn't get way off topic if I pursue this any further. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, and you know we've got you know, we, we got to manage our time here on the Monster Island Film Vault. So all right, let's start. So we're spending a lot of money here, you know, travel budget. You know? Yeah, this is true. <laughs> but the board insisted. <laughs> anyway, let's wrap things up. Okay. Well, thanks a lot, Neil, for sharing all of that with us. I think we had a pretty pleasant conversation there. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, you know, between some of the dangers we're dealing with here in Hong Kong, it's kind of nice to get a little bit of breather in there. Yeah, you know? th- this is true. This is true. I mean, the worst thing you had to put up with today was Jimmy's new mic that still doesn't quite work right. Well, I knew this at Dark Alley we took here would have been a real prime spot to hide from, you know, Hannibal Chow and Apex and everything oh, else that's been going I'm on. I'm amazed you know. Apex is still in business at this point. <laughs> I told you they got deep pockets in there. They got, they're located all over the place. Yeah, so, I mean, it was bad enough that I had to put up with Cameron Winter for a year on the island. <laughs> God help us if someone else tries to buy out Monster Island. Oh, boy. Yeah. So, but, yeah, so let's, let's wrap up the show while we're still safe. Yeah, for sure, for sure. <laughs> because you, you never know. We do have we do have one more kaiju to wrangle <laughs> to send back to the island. <laughs> but you know what time it is, Neil. Yeah. It's time for the Patreon shout-outs. I shall ask me once again, will you jump my Danny, the novelization project, D-Mana. Eli Harris! Bex from Redeem Otaku. Damon Noise! The Cellcast. Eric Anderson! Ted Williams. Winja! Hiya! The Ninja! Brad, I'm Batman. Edelman. Christopher Reiner! The Indiscrite One. Jake Hambrick! Edwin Gonzalez! Matt Walsh! But not that Matt Walsh. Jonathan Carright! Tofu Fury! Oh! <laughs> <laughs> I love that name. That is still the best name. You can't top that name. <laughs> I think you were saying before we went on the air that that sounds like it should be a Jaeger. Yes. <laughs> it's like a chef Jaeger. <laughs> You'll get right on that? Sure. Once we get back to the island, you can make another robot to add to your garage. All right. <laughs> quarters the size of an ordinary Jaeger with twice the firepower. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> tofu Fury. <laughs> tofu Fury. And it has to be a chef. Can you make a chef Jaeger?
You really think so? Okay, you get to work on those blueprints when you have a little time when we're not kaiju wrangling out here. <laughs> yeah. And we did the noise out here in the alley. We, we, we want to move on to a more secure location. Yeah, we might want to at this point because, you know, there have been some unhappy things happening in Hong Kong in the last couple of years. So, next <laughs> drone, you know, go down the other side street there. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. But speaking of kaiju wrangling, I do need to promote the next couple episodes we have coming up the world tour continues actually before we get to that next entry we do have a semi-impromptu bonus episode courtesy of matt walsh but not that matt walsh so it'll be a patreon episode on the abominable snowman from 1957 starring peter cushing which will be our first hammer film and will fit in very nicely with the Monster Island World Tour, because it is a British film, and hopefully I won't PTSD too much about my former boss. Anyway, back to the show. <laughs> we get back to that, and we will be discussing another Shaw Brothers movie. Yes, Super Inframan wasn't the only time they dabbled in kaiju, but we will be talking about, I don't know if it's famous or infamous anymore. <laughs> <laughs> but mighty peaking man oh my gosh <laughs> a, a arguably a kong well not arguably it is a kong exploitation movie <laughs> trying to jump into kongamania from the late 70s oh, i gotta tune in for that one. Oh yeah you you might want to especially since we will be having on the most frequently cited man on this podcast John LeMay <laughs> will be joining us for that one. He apparently has a weird appreciation for this one as well. I don't know if it's weirder that he appreciates this or King Kong lives more. <laughs> but there you go. And then we have the next episode of Godzilla Redux, but it's not going to be Destroy All Monsters. Why? Because reasons. But you're still going to get something akin to it. I'll be talking about the Monster Wars three-parter from Godzilla the series from 1998, the superior animated sequel to Godzilla 98. And obviously, if we're going to talk about animated kaiju, I got to have Drew and Jake from the Cellcast on for that because I think it's just a requirement now. It's an unwritten law. You talk about animated kaiju, they have to come on because that is very much in their wheelhouse. It's a perfect crossover opportunity right there. <laughs> Are you familiar with Godzilla the series, Neil? I'm familiar with it, but I never got around to watching it. I have to admit, I had a prejudice against it because I didn't like the 98 movie, so I was very lucky. I, the show is way, way better, let me tell you. And the DVD, it's not that expensive. It's maybe like 10, 12 bucks on Amazon, 40 episodes, well worth your time. I suppose it's probably, it's probably time to break down and watch it. You know, it's like, it's kind of obvious now where everyone else is saying this is not going to be, you know, the same thing as the film. Right, right. But, you know, hey, it's not the first time that there was a TV sequel to a movie that was better than that. In fact, weirdly enough, another Dean Devlin, Roland Emmerich effort got that too. Stargate. Because <laughs> yeah. the TV show is better than the movie. <laughs> 
I guess I remember Roland Emmerich's films are good inspiration for television shows. Apparently, like, so except well, except lately, when all he does is make disaster movies, and not very good ones either. But <laughs> moving on from there, because that's a rabbit hole we don't need to go down. We come to a very important segment on the show, Neil. Shameless self-promotion. So I'll mention it here really quick. Check out my author website, NathanJSMarchand.com, to follow me as a writer. And also my other podcast, Henshin Men, which is about the appreciation of Japanese superheroes and their high-flying, high-kicking adventures. And then also check out The Power Trip, A Journey Through the Power Rangers franchise, or as it's being called this season, Power Trip to Taisaku Sentai Pod Ranger because we're talking about Sentai on it. Co-host that with Michael Hamilton. And, well, I'm in a couple of audio dramas, so, you know, there's that too. <laughs> Power Rangers and hopefully X-Men. But, Neil, more importantly, what do you have going on? Tell all the kaiju lovers. I am a writer, just like uh, Nathan, and my latest book is out, Gilgamesh versus the Super Allosaurus. And just give you a tagline, it says here that the New York City is the arena the world is the prize. So mm-hmm. now you can find out what all that means. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, and then you and I are hopefully going to be paneling at G Fest this summer. Yes. Yes. On uh, our writer's panel. So, if, yeah, that's the thing. If you have come to G Fest and, you, and you're an aspiring writer, basically, our writer's panel is about answering questions for writers because we've got experience both in writing, editing, marketing you know like my, my books are available on amazon so i've, I've self-published my stuff and nathan you've also got your books published so pretty mm-hmm. much every aspect of the business you can ask us questions on you know this is basically a panel that's there for you we're not there to kind of sit and talk about ourselves and our own little concerns and mm-hmm. oh, be a writer like other writers panels no we're there to help you out <laughs> i've been to one of those you know where, where the writers panel all they do is talk about how tough their job is and it's like well mm-hmm. i mean go dig ditches or something you know <laughs> Right, <laughs> but you know, the, what's funny is that panel's how we met. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, yeah, that's right. You yeah, I've told that story a couple of times, but I just think it's funny. <laughs> yeah, well, I was at a point where I thought, oh, great, I'm not gonna be short of panelists. I need a panelist real quick, and so I kind of put a petition out there to the audience. Hey, do we have any writers in the house? You know, so I have a doctor in the house, and so you came up with with your credentials. I was like, okay, sit out over there behind the desk. You're hired. <laughs> <laughs> oh that like i said it was it was such a crazy day such a crazy day but anyway i've told that story elsewhere so you know go check those episodes out or live streams or whatever where i've told that story but yeah it was a great moment at gfest one of my one of my favorite moments from gfest and all the years that i've gone but thanks a lot neil it was great having you on hopefully we can find a safe place to drop you off so you can find a way back don't worry to the states. I'm with Shiro Airlines, you know. Ah, uh, yes. All you have to do to get home is just wake up from your dream. Ah, there you go. There you go. <laughs> uh, fun, fun fact. Fun fact. I, I think there is there's talk of bringing a Chiro who's who's now grown up, obviously, over to Monster Island sometime this year. He's a children's author now. Do you know that? Yeah. Well, I, I think you told me about that earlier uh, offline, but yeah. I'm sure we'll move. Minnie's gonna be really happy because he hadn't seen him for how long, you know? Uh, it's been a long time. It's been a long time. We should have a reunion show with those two. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> for sure. All right. And with that, hey Jimmy, cue the credits. Thank you for listening to the Monster Island Film Vault, a podcast produced and hosted by. 
Nate Marchand. Our executive producer is Damon Noyes. If you want to be heard on the show, we'd love to hear from you. So email us at monsterislandfilmvault at gmail.com. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and TikTok. You can also follow Jimmy from NASA on Twitter and our many colorful characters using the links in the show notes, which are on our website, monsterislandfilmvault.com. Don't forget to join our official Facebook group and Discord server, The Markalite Lounge. Our podcast logo was designed by Rebecca Hudgens. Follow her on Twitter and Instagram at super underscore R underscore illustrations. Sound effects sourced from freesound.org and created by JP Gant. Our theme song is Wanderer on the Offensive, live edit by B33J, Serax, Juan Madrano, and Nonsensical Lexus, which is a remix of Counterattack and The Opened Way by Koatani from Shadow of the Colossus. Additional music includes Every Country Has a Monster, performed by Jonah Ray, and Chant My Name, a cover by Second Archive of the Song by Masaki Endo. All film and audio clips belong to their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended or implied. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and or Podchaser to spread the word about the show. You can even support us by joining MIFV Max on Patreon. MIFV is a Moonlighting Ninjas media production and a proud member of Pod Nation. Sayonara! <laughs> <laughs>